HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Meet and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is, this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene, personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chef's grandmothers. Meemaw never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces for grocery stores last year, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. So in my effort to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me, from production gurus to PR and social media mavens. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand, because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Gertrude Allen, an investor with over two decades of experience growing consumer brands. She's currently CEO of Pet Plate, an early-stage direct-to-consumer pet food company, where she recently led the company through a $4 million seed round of financing. After beginning her career in marketing at Gray Global and Hill and Knowlton, Gertrude became a trusted advisor to emerging brands in consumer tech, personal care, and food and beverage. Hello, Gertrude. 
Hello, Allie. <laughs> so when you were little, did you want to be an investor or the CEO of a direct-to-consumer pet food company? <laughs> Great question. I don't think I thought about either of those two things specifically, but I definitely wanted to go into business. I had my first business when I was um, probably about 10 years old. I sold chocolate-themed lollipops to the local deli on consignment. Wow, my, okay. My pitch was, if you don't sell them, you can give them back, but I guess they selling sold them. Chocolate, yeah, chocolate lollipops at the um, cash register is sort of a you know impulse buy, so they would typically sell out. Did they let you stand there and like look cute and sell them? No. Like, I mean, they, it was just... a German deli and they took it quite seriously. And, and <gasps> that's why they wouldn't buy them from me wholesale. They said, if, if we sell them, you'll get, you know, your cut. And if we don't, we'll give them right back. But they never had to return them. So, but my mom would accompany me on those type of, you know, ventures. And, um, I, I went on to do other small cottage type businesses in right. my teens. And so, yeah, I had an eye at an early age, but a lot of the, you know, the, the whole investment field has evolved so tremendously over the last couple of decades that I don't think I, anybody could have envisioned back then what it would be like today. Right. I'm just thinking about, you know, because there, did, have you ever read the book, The Lemonade Stand? I've heard of okay. it, not read it. It's yeah. really, I mean, it really, it was like when I started The Sauces, I actually went back to this book because I had read it to my kids years ago. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's what cogs are. I mean, literally. Right. Like, this is how much it costs to do this, yep. and this is how much the ingredients are. Did your mom pay for the chocolate and the molds, or were you? <laughs> did she take a cut? Of it's a the, good question. Yeah. So the way the labor was divided in my household <laughs> was that my dad actually taught me the basics of like bookkeeping. He showed me how oh to, gosh. in a notebook, record all the costs on one side, what we were charging on the other side, and then subtract to make the profit because it, it really is that simple. My mom was really the logistics person, so she was responsible for driving me to the meetings and standing with me to you know make sure it was all kosher. Um, and then my four brothers and sisters were like my field workers, and they would actually do the handiwork, and I would pay them depending on the business, but, you know, they did different jobs, but I would, you know, certainly pay them a little bit. They always, they look back many years later and say I didn't pay them enough, but I also say they got really good experience. Were you the oldest? Oldest daughter, right. um, the second of five children. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. So after the chocolate lollipop business was a big success, what did you go <laughs> into next? Mailing list. I mailing created list? a mailing list company back in the, you know, in the eighties when, the, the idea of target marketing didn't really exist and everything was like a big, you know, um, you know, you would, you'd buy mailing lists that would cover like large geographic areas. And I found a way to really narrow it down to a very specific demographic in a very specific neighborhood. And those lists became really valuable to educational testing companies. How, I mean, how I was playing with Barbies and like <laughs> cutting their hair. Like, how did you? How did you even know that that was a thing? And how old were you? And what? Like, what? Then I was probably fourteen at the oh time. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I wanted to take an SAT prep course, and I wanted my brother, my older brother, who's a year older, year and a half older, to come along with me. And they were a fortune. You know, I think today maybe they're less expensive, but no, when they started, really okay, they are. Yeah, it was you know going to be like over a thousand dollars for the both of us and my parents were like that's just try your luck at it and we'll see how it goes and right. I said no no I really want to prep for it and long story short um we devised a method for creating the list which was really very simple we just went um to the library got out a yearbook 
we were able to there obtain the names of the students in a particular grade oh, my and gosh. then just using those little like micro yellow books yep. um, we were able to just and that was like the sort of thing I would hire my younger siblings to do they would just look up the names and if there was a duplicate name you know we, we would throw that name out so right. the lists were like if there's a you know 100 kids in the class we probably could get 80 good addresses and then we'd sell it to the well I started out just bartering <laughs> but once that once I took we, we took all of the courses, me and my brother, like right. a couple of times. Um, and then we were able to just start selling them for cash. That is crazy. Did you have another one after the mailing lists or did you go to No, college? I went, that that led me right, really into right. college. And um, actually what the companies were asking for then was to digitize the list because everything we did was handwritten. Right, and of course, you were 14. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to invest my profits back into those computers, which were still new back right. then. Right, of course. Um, you know, word processing was around, but like the computer was still fairly new back then. Um, I said, no, I think I'd rather put the same towards college and that's what we did we went off to college um and you know I went to NYU which being right in the middle of right the city you know, one of the biggest cities in the world is very just business oriented because you're surrounded by businesses in fact a lot of my professors especially in the early years were um really held very important positions in their respective field and then they would just come to NYU and teach a couple of classes right so you got exposed and then the internships were like you could pick like from so many different options versus like if you were in a real campus, like right. a campus like way, you know, outside of a big city. So we were, I was very exposed to just business in general, I think, um, at NYU and uh, NYU also, even back then, and I'm sure it's the same today, but they really encourage entrepreneur. No, absolutely. I yeah. mean, so when you say, you know, okay, clearly you were interested in business, but business could be, you know, I was interested in making money or I really wanted to buy myself this headband that my parents wouldn't get me or right. I was really interested in how something got made and then landed in someone's home. Like, what was it about business that was so compelling to you? You know, I I think what I liked about business was being able to do something that I was also very close to as a real person. So like I could really wrap my arms around food, for example, because mm -hmm. we ate it all, all the time. Right. So it, there wasn't a mystery behind food and beverage. It was like such a part of our, you know, our, right. our living. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of probably harkens back to the chocolate lollipops. That was something, even as a kid, you could sort of you could like lemonade, you could figure right. out how to do it. So that was always important to me. And I also was growing up in a time when people were becoming much more aware of food as like medicine, like, you know, mm -hmm. food could either really hurt you or it could really help you. Right. And that was in the nineties. And, you know, I lived in Europe and they were a bit ahead of us in terms of food actually providing these great benefits it was like, kind of a novel thing, you know, back then, right. really, we were thinking about food as sustenance in the US. Europeans were really thinking about how can it add to, you know, create, make me a healthier person. So I love just the, it was such a tangible right. thing. And, you know, and then I think the crossover was for me, okay, what could really kind of, you know, provide better food to more people, well, it's how you market it, right? right. It's getting people, you know, making them aware right. of the, the importance of it. And that really then led me down the path of marketing, which I guess also speaks to the the mailing list business where <laughs> I kind of understood like you just, you need access, you know? Right. And, um, and that's really when I just decided to overlap marketing and food and 
my first decade in business was really working with some, you know, small, medium, and large um, marketing agencies. So that was so that was the decision you made. You graduated from college, mm-hmm. and instead of starting your own business, you went to go help other businesses yes. get market. Exactly. Did you, did, did you think I'm getting this experience because eventually I'll start my own thing, or were you like just more interested in sort of getting the word out about things that you thought were? Yeah, I think cool? I had just like any recent college grad, I, you know, I had so much learning to do and mm-hmm. I was aware of all the, you know, the, the, inf- the knowledge gaps and, you know, the more I learned, the more I knew, the more I realized I didn't know. And right. so you just on this like constant quest for how do you do all these different things? I mean, you know, marketing was also becoming much more sophisticated. So right. it had been very siloed between like advertising PR. Mm-hmm. And then you started to see, you know, in the late nineties, um, the concept of integrated communications became very popular and it was like, oh, you know, and people really were like, what's that? And it's like, well, you know, if we really think about the way advertising affects the PR, affects the direct mail, affects the, you know, below the line marketing, right. it could add up to be something much bigger. So, you know, th- that's kind of when you're starting to, you're not siloed anymore. Now you're thinking about all these different forms of marketing. So everything just became more sophisticated. So I, what I loved about working on the agency side was you had multiple clients. So right. you looked at things right. through many different lenses and it was just an amazing learning experience. But when I kind of felt I had done a lot of it because I'd gone, you know, worked at all different size agencies, both in Europe and the U.S. That's where my kind of where that experience peaked was that I felt the further up the chain I went on on the agency side, the further away from the clients I got. It became very administrative and you're really just managing people and stuff. And I really wanted to get back to working with the brands, you know, and close to the, the team. And so that's really when I moved over to the client side. and So explain that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I kind of understood that the experience I had gained was valuable and be very valuable to a smaller company that probably couldn't afford me at one of those agencies but could right. afford me on my own. And right. so I went out on my own and I Got started it. directly consulting with um, emerging food brands. So like a company like mine who can't afford to hire a full-time marketing person, but I need help, you know, I clearly a lot of help because <laughs> I mean, and now probably even more than then because there's this like behemoth of social media, yes. but basically like figuring out who your target customers are, where do they live? How do you speak to them? You know, your messaging, I think every emerging company has 15 things that we think make us different. Right. We're all, you know, people say like, well, what makes you different? And we like have a paragraph, but you have to pick one or you have to pick two. Helping them sort of figure that out and figuring out the messaging. Distill those key, because you're you're so close to it when you're running your own business. Yeah. That's why, whether it's an agency, a consultant, or, you know, I guess a new hire, but eventually that new hire becomes the... They drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you get so close. And, And so consultants are good in that sense. And so... You know, one of the first brands that I worked with on my own, and it was an experience that spanned almost five years, was a company for anybody who's lived in New York for a while will will recognize the name Tasty Delight. Of course. So the very iconic soft serve mm-hmm. frozen dessert, really low calorie, all right. natural. And what, I can you disclose what's actually in there, or it, is that, it, yeah, this, no. the two <laughs> ingredients that made it both. Um, very low calorie and nutritious, but also extremely high margins and profitable. Uh-huh. And these were the first two ingredients on the really on the label were 
air and water. Right. So I don't by know. Volume, I think maybe it, the young people are, <laughs> they don't even know what tasty delight is. Yeah. Maddie, do you? No, no. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not ice cream. I it's grew not frozen up on yogurt. It. Yeah. I had a tummy ache a lot. Because of the air, probably. Because of the air. So they yeah. pumped some, it was more air by volume than actual, like, right. su- you know, like ingredients. And then the first ingredient was more than 80% water. Wow. But that's really what kept it. And then right. the other ingredients were like a little bit of whole milk, a little bit of cream, a little right. bit of sugar, a little bit of vanilla. So it really so was they all were emerging and they kind of came to you and said like we need help no, 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 out no. there. No. no, most people don't think they need help. I right. <laughs> I I walked up and down the streets of New York that year and I was looking for an opportunity because I really wanted to work very close with a brand and I just saw lines out the door of these uh-huh. little, you know, shops called Tasty Delight which all of them looked different. They all had different logos. Right. Like everything looked a mess, but I was like but they're jam-packed all the time. Yeah. And so I as I've gotten really every single job I've ever done, I just cold called the owner wow. and, you know, through a couple of different steps, got a meeting with her and really said, like, I think there's so much more you could do with this brand. And she's like, what? Like she had no idea. She'd been running the business for 20 years. That's it was, awesome. you know, doing well, but I was trying to explain to her how much better it could do. Right. And, you know, she understood that implicitly, like, oh, yeah, of course, there's always room for improvement. But when I really mapped out, like, what the steps would be, you know, she was like, okay, let's try it. So we did, you know, amazing work together. So bring me back, if you can, a little bit to those steps, right? Yeah. So, like, how would you, what was your, what was step one? Well, just what you were speaking about, like, really distilling what are the key messages what are the things we stand for because especially over time you tend to want to be lots like all things to all people and right. you really can't I know so I always say like at the beginning people will be like who's your demographic and I'd be like everybody everybody who eats. Yeah. <laughs> everybody and yeah. they'd be like no that's not a demographic I'm like no you don't understand yeah but it's now, a really yeah. it's so key because like over time it will build and what'll happen is you'll wind up probably adding other, you know, product lines, maybe even right. sub brands, and eventually you can be this massive brand. But to start, what t- what we did well, I think, in those years with Tasty Delight is we really doubled down on the customer that cared about us the most, which sounds like you were probably one of them. Right. And what happened is they became like cultish. Yep. So, you know, it was, I mean, if the doors would lock at 10 o'clock and we'd sometimes have these like young men banging on the glass, begging, (laughs) but saying like, but my wife will kill me if I don't bring it home. (laughs) I promised her and we'll be divorced tomorrow. You know, and it was like that kind of passion. You know, it's funny. The more things change, the more they stay the same. At the end of the day, it's like you need to have the people that just love love you. Yeah, They just love you and they become... Whether they're tweeting about it or posting about it or telling their friends or running around, however, whatever medium it is of that day, they become your biggest salespeople. For sure. And their choices, because I would say like, there was no child I ever met that didn't love Tasty Delight, but I, but they would have never made the business what it was. It was these, like this young woman who wanted her cake and eat it too, basically wanted that sweet taste of ice cream, but didn't want to gain any weight. Um, and so you just have to like focus in on that one core audience that's going to do the heavy lifting for you. And then what emerged from there is we, we got amazing product placement on, on shows like sex in the city, mm-hmm. but they were coming to us. They were like, we need this in our storyline. Right. Cause this is actually what our characters would be eating. Right. And would you just drop the product off? So we never paid for that. Now that was kind of the stars aligned. I'm not saying that's going to happen with every brand, but I think really the message is to, 
find the audience that's going to fall in love with you and be your biggest cheerleader. Because if that should happen, then it will just kind of, you know, the momentum will build on itself as opposed to you running around and trying to like pay for it. Like, Yep. In the beginning, it should be very organic, yep. and then you can start to overlay. Yep. So once we kind of really figured out who we were, who we wanted to really double down, um, you know, who we wanted our core, core audience to be, then we started to really redesign the brand to At fit that. At this point, were you working with other brands still consulting, or did you really like go in deep? So on the Tasty? first year, I'd say I probably had two or three clients, and then I just kept shutting one by one to work more and more with Tasty, right. and then I wound up being 100% with Tasty. And what that allowed me to do was also look beyond the brand and the marketing. And actually, then I started to, once I gained the trust of the owner, she really let me in um, under the hood. And then I started looking at other aspects of the business. And I had just enough life experience at that point to be able to say, yeah, I think we need to shore up this part of the operation a bit. Mm -hmm. I would visit the plant, which was in Long Island City, um, where a lot of small manufacturing was happening then. Nowadays, it's much more residential. But, you know, I could get in and really start to figure out, like, oh, yeah, there's some opportunity here. Of course, I I hired a couple of other people who were really skilled in those areas. But I was sort of starting, you know, to orchestrate. building the business. And and what happened was we had um, started getting some increase from investors who saw the brand really started starting to grow beyond New York. We had... um, when I started working with the brand, the the stores were in three states. Um, a couple, maybe three years later, we were in nine states. Right. Um, we'd gone from thirty stores to ninety stores. So investors started to take notice, especially right. investors whose family were eating the product, right? Right. Wives or daughters, and so we, I started getting calls. And you know, this is where the story got interesting because the owner you know, just was of a generation where she thought, you know, well, why would I ever sell this or mm-hmm. raise money? I mean, uh, I, the company's never done so well, you know, right. we're growing like crazy. We have a great partnership. And, you know, my, my pitch to her was, you know, just be open to like all of the options mm-hmm. and then you'll decide, you know, what will work best for you, but entertain all the different options because right. you just never know. And the more we investigated the option of, you know, either raising money or selling, you know, the more she understood that kind of like when I came to her, mm-hmm. these investors were going to actually bring something that yep. actually she and I on our own could never right. do either. Um, and so in the end, we did wind up selling the company right. to a great a great group of investors, actually led by one of the most well-known consumer investors in, in the world, Thomas H. Lee. Um, he had you know, turned around companies like Snapple, you right. know, bought it and then sold it. And... Uh, you know, and then a younger group of investors who were just great. And, you know, they really were able to start doing things with the brand that would have been hard for us as a small private company to do such as franchise it. So we're going to take a little break. But basically, I think that's the perfect place to segue into what is a seed round? And why should we bring on investors? And what kind of investors are we looking for? And all of those questions to come. Thank you. 
Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to In the Sauce. I'm Allie Kane. I'm with my guest, Gertrude Allen, um, who is now the CEO of Pet Plate, but just told me a really cool story about how she got started in business. Um, and I think what's why I really wanted you on the show is because you're now um, the CEO of Pet Plate, but you started off as an investor in Pet Plate. So did you just love the company so much that you're like, I'm going to be the CEO? And how did how did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it happens probably more often than people realize. Um, you know, but there's many, many paths, obviously, to, you know, becoming a CEO. In my case, the path was that I was with um, working with an early stage consumer venture fund called Brand Project. Um, it's a Canadian-based fund, and I was effectively running their New York office. And I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt because sure. I'm gonna get really like down to like 101. Okay. So early stage consumer consumer venture, venture fund. fund. Okay. Right. Each one of those words makes sense alone. Right. But break it down. Sure. So consumer. Um, obviously just means that a fund has decided they just want to invest in consumer-facing brands versus like B2B, you know, uh, products or services. Um, Early stage really means the company is still somewhere between pre-revenue and um, probably like just beyond a test market. Um, So, you know... it, it definitely is quite a range right. um, nowadays, but it just, it means, you know, the company has probably not been, um, you know, in market with their product for more than call it like a year to two years. Is it the same as venture or? Yeah. Different? And then the venture fund is it's, it functions like venture. The, the, the biggest difference is the size check. So Got it. early stage venture funds will typically invest. Um, first of all, they tend to be smaller, funds. So, you know, uh, and, and actually I would say there's probably two levels of early stage. There's what I would call a micro fund, mm-hmm. which might be kind of in the eight to $15 million range. And then not the check, but the actual the, fund of the fund. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Right. And then the, um, the kind of more classic early stage consumer or venture funds might be anywhere from call it like 15 to $50 million. Um, so they're going to write a larger check and we can talk about the different check sizes. Yes. 
then you'll have after that, um, you know, the companies, the, the funds that want to invest in later stage companies, you're, you're probably going to find that those funds have at least $50 million under management. And the, you know, kind of the later stage funds will have multiple funds that they've operated. Got it. Um, and then it, from there, it kind of goes up to private equity, um, where the company, Company, Only writes really big checks. Yeah, and companies that are very well established um, and are very, very large. And, you know, where the next step is likely going to be some kind of an exit, whether right. it be a purchase by, you know, the company will be purchased by a strategic buyer or it will um, IPO. Right. Um, so that's usually private equity is like the step before you know, some sort of a liquidation event. Okay, awesome. That was such a, like, that was a very good breakdown. So you were working at an early stage consumer, consumer venture, fund, venture yeah. fund, and your job was basically evaluating companies to yeah. see if you wanted to write a check, any, what was your average check So the size? check size, so that would have been, so that fund, um, you know, is sort of more on the micro size side so it's um a 12 million dollar fund mm-hmm. and then the the check size would be anywhere from like two hundred fifty thousand dollars to a million um with a million never really being one check would be um a couple of checks if right. it got to a million um and so i was doing advising on deal flow so looking at companies in the u.s market that might be interesting to this fund um but then also advising on the companies they'd already invested in, um, right. since many of their investments are in the U.S. Right. Um, and this particular fund, Brand Project, they really love the direct-to-consumer space. So mm-hmm. they've made several investments in uh, direct-to-consumer brands um, that are subscription commerce versus right. e-commerce. So they really love like recurring revenue. So anything that lends itself to a subscription, like baby food or pet food. Yes, right. and and in and in fact, they've mostly, I would say, all of the direct-to-consumer investments have been in at least ingestible. So meaning food, beverage, whether it be for human or pet and also, um, vitamins, vitamins. Right. So, um, and, and so that's kind of the model that they've really just honed in on. And when I joined pet plate was a company that they were looking at. And so I just jumped right in. I helped do some due diligence. Um, we were all in favor of making the investment, um, I then led the transaction, um, mostly because the company was based in Brooklyn and I was based in Manhattan. So it was just very, you know, easy for me to kind of work on the transaction itself. And coming out, we made the investment in the fall of 2016. And the model at Brand Project, which is not, this is also something you'll find with the very small funds, is they mm-hmm. tend to get very involved. Like they're, you know, if they're not writing large checks, they're kind of compensating for the, you know, maybe the smaller check size by adding value through some kind of um, advice or, you know, just consulting. And obviously having been a consultant, it was easy for me to just jump in and try to help troubleshoot where I, you know, saw, you know, issues arising. And so started working very closely with the founder, Ronaldo Webb, Mm -hmm. um, after we made the investment and really just like, you know, I guess three to six months in, we saw the company was starting to take off mm-hmm. and Ronaldo being a single founder really needed Help. like a partner. Yeah. yeah. And it's also hard to recruit a partner. I mean, you either wind up, you know, you'll start a company by yourself or with a, you know, a friend or an associate. It's kind of hard to hire that person yep. um, right out of the gate. Um, but here I was working so closely with them as an investor. So um, the fund management and Ronaldo said, you know, 
it'd be great just to continue working with you. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. Um, I really, you know, it wasn't the pet market that attracted me again. Mm -hmm. It was the food. Our food is human grade food for dogs. Um, eventually we'll probably sell it, you know, create a line for cats, but, um, the food is just really healthy. And that to me was just the key. Like I just did, you know, I don't even think you need to be an animal lover to realize like, all, you know, living, breathing right. things need like healthy food. Right. And that's what this company was solving for. Did you feel, and then we'll, we'll get to like other investment stuff, but just like personally, because I have friends who kind of go back and forth between like being on a team and then consulting. Yeah. And they, and they literally flip flop like every couple of years mm-hmm. because both of them have their fun parts. Sure. And did you miss it all? Like, were you worried that you were going to miss kind of this, like dabbling in all these different businesses and helping troubleshoot these different people and then putting all your eggs in one basket yeah. of this one company? You know, it's a great question because it's one I thought a lot about when I was asked to assume this responsibility. I took it very seriously and I wanted to make sure it wasn't going to, um, you know, I, I didn't want to find myself, you know, regretting it and and not being able to give it my all. So I thought a lot about it and I thought it's just such an amazing opportunity. Right. I'm going to, and I actually really believed in the mission of the company. I really enjoyed working with the founder and I really thought we could grow the business. And I thought it's just, it's just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Let me just go for it. And I did. And where I thought I would start to have those either regrets or start to miss, you know, being more independent and, they all that all kind of just dissolved as we started to build a team, right? Because as we started to just bring more people in that we were, you know, excited to work with and you know, really helped grow the business, you just saw the fruits of your labor happening right in front of your eyes. Right. So, a year and a half later, we now have a team of 10 people, and you know, we're doing amazing things. And the joy and satisfaction of seeing that all come together like, I've never really right. looked back, yeah. So we are, you know, um, we are very heavily now starting to think about bringing in outside money. Mm -hmm. Until now, Havens has been able to fund Sauce, Mm -hmm. um, which is great, if not a bit straining on Havens. Um, And, you know, we're not profitable, obviously, yet, you know, the Mm -hmm. pouches themselves aren't making enough money to fuel what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And we do need to grow a team and we do need to invest in some more marketing and, you know, certainly getting the word out that more, um, you know, more. But I've been very reluctant to bring in outside money because I've heard some horror stories, Mm -hmm. obviously, and you don't want to lose control. Right. And, you know, then the answer is like, well, do friends and family. But I don't necessarily want like my friend's aunt mm-hmm. calling and saying like, there was no chimichurri at the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't really, I, I think I would prefer institutional mm-hmm. than friends and family. But can you talk a little bit about when a company, you know, I don't want to wait too long. I want to get ahead of the game, but I don't want to be at a low valuation and give away right. too much equity When's it good to raise debt? When's it good to, you know, have investors? When's there sort of the upside of more friends and family versus bringing in institutional? Mm -hmm. And sort of like, just break that all down for me in the next five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I, I would say, to keep it really simple, 
I don't think it's a bad thing to start with friends and family. I think you have to be selective about those friends and family. I know mm-hmm. Ronaldo s- started the company largely with his own savings, but he brought in a handful of friends that were really pretty savvy. They were working in investment banking or consulting. Mm-hmm. They saw his vision, they saw his plan, and they really got it. So while they were friends, and they definitely were friends, I think they were like some fraternity friends and stuff. Right. That's how he knew them. He also very was very selective with the friends he went out to. They could really judge the risk and the reward. And they knew when they put their money in, which you know was a modest investment as friends and family investments are, they understood that was, there was a chance they could lose their money, but they thought, okay, there's there's enough there that I'm going to take that risk, and and that was a good thing because that actually gave him like he wasn't doing it alone anymore. Now he had like a a, a network of like trusted advisors that mm-hmm. had put a little money in, and he could go to as a sound you know first um, use them as a sounding board. But where he realized, and and you know I'll just tell it through his story because yeah. I think it's a good no, example. Is yeah, is he realized once he kind of had a real proof of concept. And I know that term is used a lot and maybe people don't like, well, what does that really mean? You know, he had enough of, um, of a pattern, um, to see that this was a product people really, really wanted. Right. And, you know, one of the things you look at in a, in a subscription business is something called churn, like how, how, often do people cancel? That's the churn rate. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can look at it the other way is how how long do they stay? That's the retention rate. And what he found was that, you know, for the most part, if this product, you know, worked for the dog, they were not changing, like they were on it. And so he had like a few key metrics. And I think every business has their own set of key metrics. And you know, if you're not sure what your key metrics are, really, I would advise you to just reach out to a mentor or somebody in your network who you who could kind of walk you through that. Because I think I think ours is velocity. Yes, in retail right. it would be velocity. That's one very and MPS <laughs> is another one, which is the um, net promoter score. It's like NPS. Yeah, on a scale of one to ten, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? And the higher the the um, the number, the higher your MPS score. And is that something I would just send out a survey? Yeah, typically yeah. that's done with a survey. So there's different metrics, and um, he had a, he had a few key metrics that were looking really good, and so what he but he continued to grow the business on his own because you can't just have you know, the data at that early stage is, is, is kind of limited. Right. right? So what you, you also need a little bit of volume. And so you are going to have to typically at the beginning, you're going to grind a lot and have, you know, it's going to be hard. Like you're going to, he, he tells the story of having to sell his Bitcoin, you know, back then, Mm -hmm. because he kind of got to that place where he's like, I still need more money to grow this. So he literally looked for every option. And, but the reason he did it is you, you do need some volume. And by that, I mean, you know, sales volume, right. Um, you know, something that, you know, maybe number of customers, like it couldn't just be one or two key metrics. It was like, yeah, I've also been able to, because what you're doing um, at that point is demonstrating to future investors that the team in place can also grow the business. So you can prove that the concept is popular, that people will buy this, but you also have to show that the team can execute by getting it to a certain level. So what level is is appropriate? You know, I would throw out a number and it's it's arbitrary. I mean, yeah. you could plus or minus, but I would say like if you can get your business to $500,000 annual run rate, so that means if you take like right. a certain month, like a month, the last month's revenue and multiply right. it by 12, would it equal 500,000? If it would, 
the chances are, and, and, and that's in your like first year of business or maybe like right. the second, you know, year at most, then you start to see a real business is emerging. Right. That's actually the time I would say switch from friends and family to either angel investors or, um, the micro funds. Well, that's very helpful because our run rate right now, and I've, I've met people that really don't like run rate because yeah. whatever you pick a random, you pick mm-hmm. your best month and you multiply mm-hmm. it by 12, but it's, you know, it's but somewhere between 260 and 300 depending. Right. So right. we're kind of like right in the middle there. And yeah. I just feel like for our first people coming in, I feel like I want to do it right. And I don't want to have, you know, what's called, like I, for those of you who don't know, like every investor that you have basically goes on this big sheet and that's called a cap table, mm-hmm. right? And I don't want to have tons and tons of people that I have to give updates to constantly and stuff. So mm-hmm. I'd like fewer, um, but I don't want to give up too much of the company. So... And that's the, that's another reason for, you know, getting to a certain run rate because the more run rate you have, the more valuation the company has and the less you'll need to give up when you do take money in. But, you know, an angel investor is just different than a micro fund in that it'll be, you know, an individual acting on his own, but unlike friends and family, it's probably what they're doing for a living or if they're doing it, um, outside of a day job, they're doing it a lot. It's not like a one-off. Um, and there are networks of angels that you can access. Right. Um, the next step up are those, what I call micro funds. And, and I, I've just, I don't think that's a real word. I just, you know, it's something I imagine, I sort of, um, think about because it's a fairly new crop of funds that have come out in the last couple of years, these like eight to 10, eight to $15 million funds. I mean, right. really back, you know, five years ago, a fund really didn't launch unless it had like at least 25 million under management. But right. Everything's gone downstream, and pe- right. the good news for emerging brands is that there's a lot of money. Well, that, and they <laughs> want to invest earlier. Yeah, I mean, historically, it wasn't like that at all. You couldn't go out to outsiders until you had like a very right. big company. Every year, it goes down, 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 and so with that has you know birth like these small funds, and those small funds are nice because unlike the angel investors, they have much more of a process. So you're probably, it becomes much more standardized. So when you do start to raise whatever the pitch deck looks like and the diligence looks like, it's probably going to be the same for any number of small funds. With an angel, you know, one might ask one question, the other one might ask a hundred questions. You know, once you get into the fund world, it's going to be a lot more, you know, there's systems and processes that investors use that start to really look alike and it makes the job of raising money a lot easier. You might have to come on another week because I feel <laughs> like we, we've like scratched the surface, yeah. but the, you know, we only have a few more minutes sure. left, but I do want to ask you sort of like, you know, what, what should you be looking for in an investor? Like mm-hmm. what for my friends out there and for people who are listening, sure. you know, we're all getting approached. There's no question. Like anything that's kind of interesting that seems to have like a brand that has like a little bit of legs. Right. What, what are the red flags? Let's put it this way. What, sure. Who, who are the best partners to have as investors? Yeah. I mean, I would say you really don't want to sell your soul, you know, especially at the beginning to people who aren't like-minded. So mm-hmm. you really want to look for, I mean, investors don't need to be your friends, but they should feel like colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, if they feel like an adversary, even before they invested, that's a red flag. Right. Um, you know, it isn't to say you wouldn't, 
you should always take anyone's money extremely seriously, like it's your own. And you do want to be, you know, very respectful of other people's opinions and be very communicative. But what you don't want is to take money from someone who sees the world very differently than you do and will, from the beginning, try to orchestrate things or, you know, try to send you down a very different path than you were going on, you know, then, you know, really it's just, it's it's not a good fit. So interview the investor as much as they interview you to look for certain things that are important to you, you know, just in terms of the way um, business is operated, um, really the vision for the company and the path you plan to go on, make sure there's alignment there. It isn't to say you won't pivot, but I've seen investors, you know, come in and then really want to like have the right. company's business model change dramatically. Yeah. And, and that becomes like a massive distraction and really then they should have invested in a different, in a different company. company. So, yeah. you know, take that. I mean, I know when you're raising money, you, you know, it's, it's a lot of work and yeah. you'll often feel under pressure and you'll want to make things just happen quickly, but don't sell yourself short, take the time right. you need to interview the investors. Awesome. And final question. If you had one piece of advice to offer me mm-hmm. <laughs> or a company like mine, um, what would it be? Well, there's a lot of things I would want to you know, talk about, but we just touched on um, something earlier today, you and I, um, and so I'll mention that, is, is if you can get into an incubator or an accelerator mm-hmm. um, at at this stage, which I know your company was successful yeah. and got into the Chibani incubator, which is an mm-hmm. amazing one. Yeah. Um, I would encourage other entrepreneurs to do the same. I think one thing I will say about this is that when they were new, they were really sexy. Everybody wanted to get in them. And then there was a lot of them mm-hmm. and they got a little bit of a bad rap, mm-hmm. like, oh, it's just a thing to do. And it can be a big distraction. And what do you really get out of it? I feel like because of that, the you know, it's gotten tighter. And I think now incubators are much more focused on delivering real value to yeah. the brand. I, I really have seen a, a shift. And so I would not discount that. I think it's you know, worth the application. Yeah. For and sure. it's worth applying again and again. A- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there are just things that you can get out of there, whether it's absolutely. that distance from the company you need first, you know, from your own company to gain some perspective. Obviously the network building is amazing and you could, you know, directly be introduced to investors. A lot of these incubators um, or accelerator programs culminate with a, a yep. deal day. And it just, it does take extra time, but it's time well spent in building your brand. Absolutely. Gertrude, thank you so much. I, You're welcome. I, there, was, there was so much I got out of that. And I, I know we spent a little time on the chocolate lollipop <laughs> story, but I feel like it was actually like amazing to hear about how you got to where you are. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for coming on. Matt, thank you for engineering the heck out of us. (laughs) And we will see you next time on In the Sauce. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.